For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Good evening. Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL Montreal's Josh Miller. Good evening, Josh. Hello, Dan. And this evening, we're going to talk about uh, Pretty Lights and uh, an interesting tech company um, with uh, Jonathan LaBay of Seiko Technologies. And Jonathan literally travels all around the world. He was telling us he was helping set up, you know, um, uh, building infrastructure, lighting, and and displays for NASDAQ and companies like that. I mean, really an incredible job. The Burj Khalifa that is this huge huge monster building in Dubai, but he did get his first start in the rock concert side. So we're going to hear about that shortly. That should be a fun interview. So Jonathan LaBay of Seiko Technologies uh, up uh, in a few minutes here on Today's Entrepreneur. And then we'll chat with uh, HR advisor Michelin Mayette about talent retention and acquisition. And we're also going to preview that uh, that event coming up on Thursday at JMSB, which is put on by, by you guys at FL. Um, it's called Tomorrow's Workplace Today, and we'll have details on that as well later in the show. So that's Thursday uh, evening, I believe, right, Josh, at JMSB? It's actually Thursday all day. Full all day, day okay. workshop. Excellent. So we'll get into those details. So if you're interested in that, uh, stay tuned. Uh, but first, uh, news and notes as usual. And Canada Goose keeps rolling on. They have that that marquee store uh, in downtown Montreal now on Peel and St. Catherine. And uh, I guess it's, things are going well because uh, they are um, they're expanding to Quebec. And really, and it's it's not a not a huge story, but I did want to highlight it because yes, they have their Ontario production facility, but they're they're growing leaps and bounds. They they are a public company. They had their last quarter ending December 31st had over $100 million of profit compared to over, a little over $60 million the year before in the same quarter. And they're expanding in Montreal. They're building, they build quality product. They are, you know, Dan, and, and I'm a bit of a, a broken record on many things I know, but this was a, you know, why do you go into a store? Why do you go buy? You need to give the consumer a reason to go in. They've been giving phenomenal reasons to walk into their store, whether it's a unique experience, whether it is a high-end product, whatever it is, they're giving great reason to go into the store. So I just wanted to highlight that, and uh, and I look forward to them producing here in Quebec. Apparently, they have a they have a freezer at their downtown location, so you can try on the coats. They 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 do, and it's depending on the type of coat, so the the thickness or the, what whatever whatever criteria they give for the coat, you can get into their freezer and not only experience cold, but experience wind chill, so blowing cold, hmm. and just to see how warm the coats are wow. and what what exactly what level of coat you want. That that's a unique experience for sure. Talking about the future of retail and those experiences come up so often, and there's a really <laughs> cool way to sell your winter coats. Um, Amazon, uh, they are uh, are perhaps headed towards, is, is it going to be a conflict, do you think, with the Quebec government, or is, is are, are things moving in the right direction here? This is, I think, really preliminary, but this, this story caught my eye where there are rumors out there, and I don't think it's quite confirmed just yet, but rumors out there that the Quebec government wants to use private companies to store their data, to I guess, from a privacy, from a, an encryption standpoint, where they're just much better equipped, because you think Amazon, and Amazon has all the money in the world to properly encrypt and protect the data. So, you know, Quebec government, there are rumors, and this this story came out in the Gazette, that the Quebec government might use Amazon to store its data. Now, this is kind of, this is very interesting, a little bit scary, a little bit 1984-esque, maybe a little bit, from a private standpoint. There's part of me that appreciates it because the government understands and recognizes that it's 
rather, it's actually quite difficult to protect privacy and data. And there's another part that says, what are they releasing? What are the, what information are they releasing? So I, I guess uh, there, there's that component from a consumer aspect. If I think about it from an entrepreneurial aspect, all it means is if the government's worried about privacy, anybody that runs a business that collects data on their on their own customers or consumers or suppliers, whatever, they better really, really, really think about privacy because this is an issue that has been around for, for many, many years and will become even that much more important in the future. If you're an entrepreneur holding information about your customers and suppliers, really, I hope you are protecting that data, encrypting it, whatever you got to do, because that can absolutely impact your reputation. This story from Inc.com, uh, someone, uh, this entrepreneur, uh, one of these feel-good stories, going from $411 to her name in the bank to a $23 million flower powerhouse business. Farm Girl Flowers. And really, there were a couple of articles I read that were south of the border, you know, south of the 49th parallel, that really had similar messages. This, uh, this is a real entrepreneur. She wanted to disrupt a market, flower industry. Who's disrupted the flower industry since FTD? You know, it's, it's been 20, 30 years in the making since the flower industry has been disrupted. And all, all she wanted to do was do something different. It hasn't been touched in so long. She took her $49,000 worth of life savings, invested it over two years, and just tried to do something differently. I don't think it was so much about the flowers themselves because everybody has access to all the flowers, but it was how it was packaged and how it was maybe delivered and how it was a little bit extra touch. And I think that's that's where the message really comes out is you want to start a business? That's great. Differentiate yourself. Find something. So she, you know, she uses a, a small burlap sack to wrap around her flowers, and that's what distinguishes her because, as we all know, flowers, or at least as some of us know, and certainly after Valentine's Day last week, some of us know, not necessarily myself. I was a little remiss, but I won't go there. Uh, it, you know, they're they're wrapped in cellophane or they're wrapped in 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 some type of paper. Uh, but this burlap sack was was something that was a little unique. And she was down to her last dollar and kicked out of her apartment for working in her apartment. And then suddenly got this, you know, got this, somebody walked by and saw it and said, wow, you're the farm girl flowers. And she had this whole renown, you know, this inspiration. She continued. Anyhow, it was a great story, but all to say, you got to do something a little different. So when I read this other article, uh, and it was, it was about, uh, Lenny and Larry's complete mm. cookies. I love this piece of advice. And, and it's great. It's Lenny and Larry's complete cookies. And, you know, I, I automatically, I read that and I think Felix Norton because we've had them on several times in the show. But but they they were you know they knew every aspect of their business so there was a few things they said in there, one, along with the the farm girl flowers was, be different, find anything different, whatever you can do, don't do the same as your competitor because the chances of you flopping are astronomical. Do something a little different. But in addition to that, it's like they knew every aspect of their business before they even grew further. They they were they became an expert in every single part about making cookies. It was it was something that that absolutely they and there was a whole bunch. It was basically a Q and A article that was sitting in in entrepreneurial uh, in entrepreneur dot com, and it was you know it, it was really it was nice to hear that they always kept their feet on the ground. It was always nice to hear that that they always wanted to do and and they, what they both said. Guerrilla marketing. 
right at the outset, they didn't have any money. They were pounding the pavement. They were leaving little samples here and there, and they were measuring, most important, they were measuring the effect of each little step of guerrilla marketing because they couldn't afford to waste any dollars or time. So from, a, from an entrepreneurial aspect, from starting out, huge. I have to say, one of the early lessons I learned in uh, entrepreneurship was, you know, if you can, as an owner, jump in there and, and do the job. Um, if an employee is sick or maybe on mat leave or just maybe got something wrong, then, yeah, that could cause you problems down the road. It, it can't. Listen, there's there's no better customer service. When, when a consumer is dealing with the owner direct, a leader in the company, they feel that much more connected. So you can't do that all the time. If you grow to such a huge business, you can't do that all the time. But if you can at least at the outset be part of that customer service aspect, be part of that that experience, I think that goes a huge, hugely long way. So for all the startups out there, you know, it's important to delegate. It's important to know what you don't know and give away. But it's super important to stay connected, understand every aspect of the business, and be present. It's a tough balance, eh, between being uh, sort of a multitasker uh, and having uh, a finger in all piles, and then also um, being a little obsessive in the way that you run your business, which I, I think it could be a good thing. I think it's. De- I think it depends. You know, are you are you more retail? Or are you more wholesale? Are you more something that's feeding other businesses, or are you in the consumer space? And I think that's a that's a, a very large distinguishing factor whether you're. physically present and involved in everything or not. We're going to talk about uh, Seiko Technologies with uh, Jonathan LaBay in a second, about his travels all around the world, about the incredible lighting displays that he's done for clients uh, around the world, including here in Montreal. So Jonathan is on the way. And later we're going to talk about HR talent and how to retain them and how to acquire them. That's all coming up this evening on Today's Entrepreneur. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, Chartered Professional Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL Montreal's Josh Miller with you on Today's Entrepreneur. And this evening, we're chatting with Jonathan LeBay of Seiko Technologies. Welcome to CJD, Jonathan. Thanks, guys, for having me. And Josh, an incredible business. I mean, uh, just the, the 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 headlines alone from the from the website. I was checking this out. The tallest screen on the planet. A credit uh, to their name in uh, for this project in uh, in Dubai. Uh, almost eight hundred meters. Uh, Seven hundred and seventy, I believe, is the number of meters of the screen on, a, on an over eight hundred meter building. But that is not the only thing that they do, although it's probably one of their more well-known things. So, the the very first question tonight is we ask each week, and uh, we'll turn to you, Jonathan, and say. What What is Seiko Technologies? Well, Seiko Technologies is basically a company that um, creates, um, I would say, unique and innovative media solutions, right? Main, but mainly LED. So video displays, LED video lighting, and that ends up being on rock concerts like uh, Madonna or Lady Gaga or anybody else that you guys may think uh, or have been seeing uh anywhere at an arena or stadium, and of course, buildings like Burj Khalifa. So really, LED lighting, where any consumer individual can see, that's where you guys shine. That is correct. Now, let's let's take it back X number of years or decades. Where did, where did this company, where did Seiko start? And where did you start with Seiko? <laughs> yeah, okay, so let me take you just very quickly through a timeline. So it started in 1987 uh, with uh, two brothers, the Jalbu brothers, Fred and Bassam, who are uh, still our partners today, so the original founders. 
And uh, they started Seiko uh, back then. And Seiko basically stands for Systems Automation Control. And they were specializing in basically revolutionizing the industrial control panel and nuclear industry. All right, so nothing to do with what we do today. Um, but in these, so that whole panel where the people turn the keys and push the button, yep. that's what they were specializing in. Exactly. Now, now in these panels, which oftentimes are hundreds of feet long, there's like these thousands of indicator lights and push buttons that was using traditional lamps. And this is where they started experimenting with LED for reliability and cutting down on maintenance. That's uh, that's that's quite the start. How long ago was that? Eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. Yeah. Now, when did it ultimately get into the LED? Like, wh where's the progression of that story <clears throat> next? Yeah, so when they started experimenting with LED, there was only red and green available, okay? And to make the primary colors, you have red, green, and blue. So in 1992, uh, one of our suppliers, which is still one of our suppliers today, Nichia, uh, they invented the blue LED. And they took these blue LEDs and shipped them to Montreal to these two guys and said, hey, what can you do with this? And they built the very first L ever LED video display on the planet. And then fast forward to 1996, <clears throat> we meet uh, U2. By the way, I, I met these guys around 94. When, when, did, when did you start at Seiko? Yeah, so I started hanging around around 94. I actually got hired probably around 95 or so after they got uh, they realized that. After I mean, you were hanging around so yeah, much, they couldn't get go. rid of you. Exactly. <laughs> but 1996 is, uh, is really when everything shifted uh, for Seiko. Uh, we became Seiko Technologies then. Uh, but essentially, we uh, met the band U2 and they gave us uh, an incredible challenge. Now, they flew to Montreal, and all they saw was this little one-and-a-half-foot by one-and-a-half-foot display <laughs> that was running still images. And they had asked us, could we do something that's 50 feet tall by 150 feet wide with full video? And, of course, we said yes. And uh, that ended up being um, for their uh, 1997 Popmart tour. It's interesting. You say we said yes, and uh, and I don't want to you know fast forward to everything you know through the entire life. I'm sure there's a, a lot going on, but was that a, a credo? Was that a bit of a culture? Is say yes before mm -hmm. you can sometimes actually do it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always it's always like an educated yes, of course. Yes. Um, uh, no, naturally. Um, but um, I mean, part of our culture is 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 definitely innovation, and I think uh, I think that uh, that these two brothers, the culture they put into the company that we've continued to this day, is basically take an idea, break it down, and then see what we can do and explore the edge, right? And once we find the edge, we trim back a little bit to make it feasible. And that edge keeps changing on a day-to-day -day basis. That's why the projects keep evolving and the technology evolves also. Uh, and there's no pun intended. The edge, you know, you two. We're, we're, <laughs> wow, that, that's we're, good one. We're, we're not going there quite so quickly. Were they? Did, did you work like closely with your with your customers? I know you. I'm sure you do always. But you two, as your as the first, you know, I guess, use being the edge of technology just to continue mm -hmm. that that expression. Was it always a close relationship? Uh, yes, and it's close relationship with pretty much every one of our partners. I mean, uh, uh, and clients. If you if you can imagine it, it's. Um, I mean, it it's something that's pretty intimate, right? Because you're you be basically become like this visual megaphone for these artists. But if you look in permanent installation buildings like Burj Khalifa, I mean, you are their nighttime identity. You started out the company as something very technical and then became something very creative. Did you have to acquire expertise over the years to become more creative? Um, well, we recruited um, here in Montreal. Obviously, a, there's a really, really good um, creative base of talent that has a lot of technology. You know, they're very attracted to technology. So I think that we kind of grew that um, organically uh, so we did not acquire any companies. Now, 
the, you know, you're, you're touching on human resources and the people. How many are you today? Uh, 76, actually, as of today. 76. Th- this was a, a progression over time. And I, I, know, I know we'll come to uh, the, the part of the story that we'll come to maybe after, after the half hour or in the next half hour is going from private to public back to private. Yes. But before we get there, just a question of the human resource side and, and how you look for your talent or, or what do you look for when people do you look for skills is obviously very important. Do you look for character and fit? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where do you find them? How does that human resource uh, come into play? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously character and fit is, is very important. I mean, the skill set's kind of a given, you know, I mean, when you're looking for somebody, especially if you're like placing ads or, or, or kind of doing like the traditional uh, uh, HR uh, approach. Um, but we do use a lot of non-traditional HR approaches, meaning if we meet people um, and we realize that they could have a bit of a talent um, and then they have a good character for Seiko, normally we'll invite them over. And from a hierarchical level, I mean, I, are you are you flatter? Are you more mm-hmm. uh, up down? How, do, how does that work? What's worked best for you guys? Yeah, so we, so basically, we have two structures in the company, right? We have our uh, our, our control stru- our control structure, which is all of our accounting and 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 the way that we that we run the business. Um, but then, from an operational point of view, we're very flat. So everybody in the company is um, basically an expert at something. And when we work on projects, well, you know, you go talk to the different experts within each group. And we operate as a very flat hierarchy. So when you're and when you're using subcontract because you you work throughout the world. Yes. There's this is not a local only. I mean, obviously we're talking about Burj Khalifa. We're talking about artists that that have their concerts around the world. How do you, do you then find local talent wherever you go? Yeah. So um, uh, depends uh, depends on the cases. I mean, most of the time we'll send people that supervise the installation. But if we use Burj, for example, because everything's exaggerated, everything's so big and, and there's so much. Dubai, everything exaggerated? I don't understand. <laughs> Talking about the sizes, obviously. Um, but the fact is, is that, you know, we we've become very, very good at uh, at putting in management structures and we can and we can ramp up and ramp down very quickly. So Dubai, for example, we replicated our um, basically our production shop over in Dubai. So we manufactured all of the technology here in Montreal, but all of the mechanical aspects like the extrusions and the brackets and stuff like that, we would manufacture uh, over in Dubai and do final assembly there, all the testing and everything right near the facility, and then we would ship over there and install. So do the project in Dubai, this is, I believe, the largest building in the world, right? The tallest building in the world right now? It is, yeah. Does, does a project like this intimidate you when you talk to these people and, 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 and they, they put this on the table? I mean, uh, this building is almost a kilometer tall. Is there anything that you that you guys uh, shy away from? Um, well, I mean, the building itself, when you're standing in front of it, it's definitely intimidating. So thank God we didn't do the deal at the building. <laughs> I mean, and, and it wasn't yourself, as uh, you know, installing all the LED lights on the ropes. Right, but but the thing is though is that obviously it's an evolution, right? I mean, I mean, we started off doing um, you know smaller projects and and, um, and and so on. So I mean, it led us to being able to do the largest and the tallest building in the world. So I mean, we were very well prepared, and we have uh, the right teams for that. And obviously, we had brought in the right talent to do the uh, the actual install locally. All right, super interesting work. We're going to keep chatting with Jonathan LeBay of Seiko Technologies in a little while. And Josh, later on, we're going to talk about HR issues, as well as bring in Michel Mayette, our HR consultant, on how to retain and acquire talent here in Montreal. So that is on the way. Uh, but first, we have the news here on Today's Entrepreneur. For 
For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL Montreal's Josh Miller. And this evening, we're talking with Jonathan LeBay of Seiko Technologies. Uh, they are a pioneer in the LED lighting space. Uh, they've worked on the tallest building in the world. Uh, they've worked for NASDAQ, uh, doing those LED displays down there. You too. Lots of concerts. You too. Uh, just an incredible company. And uh, and Jonathan, let's uh, let's come back. And, and Josh, we shift a bit to, to the people. Uh, yeah, we, we we chatted about the people before, but when there's one aspect about their business that is 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 truly inspirational. It's very interesting. Uh, I'm sure people have thought about it before as they grow their business. Uh, you know, I'll skip to the end. The end is Seiko was private, sold to public, and then came back to private. There's definitely a story behind it. We only really we don't have enough time to get, do it justice. But maybe Jonathan, you can you can give us a little bit of the highlights of of how it kind of got to that. Mm-hmm. public state first yeah so in 2004 there's a client that we started doing some lighting for all right so as we're concentrating on video um you know we were picking up some lighting clients because LEDs were becoming powerful enough to do that and one of those clients was um lsi industries out of the u.s a big white light company doing traditional lamps so not quite i mean you would think it's not really a fit but at the end of the day they're looking to replace all these lamps with led and led was becoming more and more popular back then so in 2006, they made an offer to acquire us. Okay, and we—it uh, was a obviously it was a it was a very nice offer. It was a very good offer, but one of the things that interested um, uh, the original founders, Fred and Bassam, was um, the fact that we were allowed that we would be able to put our technology into more people's hands. All right, so that was that was kind of the clincher of this whole thing. Plus the uh, the leadership and the management over at LSI, super nice people. Okay, good clients and all that. So they acquire us in 2006. Seiko becomes basically LSI Seiko and is basically the R&D division of LSI Industries. And over up until 2011, I think we had converted over 80% of the revenue to LED. Was it a long process to to deal with them? No, because we already knew them, right? They were already our clients for two years. So the fit was really nice it was uh it was a bit different but we learned a lot and they learned a lot and it was it was really good so fast forward to 2011 2011 um you know we're we have bandwidth okay over at seiko and we're uh, now at this point we're all working for lsi so fred and i go to the board of directors there and we say hey um it'd be interesting to start exporting lsi products into the rest of the world like Europe and the Middle East where we have lots of contacts and obviously there's the whole concert side of the business that we're still um, heavily involved in. Seiko remains a, still a separate business just owned by or is it all under one of all really well, one well it's under it's under LSI Industries and then okay. Seiko becomes because we're a Canadian entity becomes LSI Seiko okay okay and mainly its main focus is developing um, LED light engines for uh, for the US entity. So we, you know, we go there with that idea, and at the time the economy was eh, not doing so so great, right? It was coming out of that that yeah. kind of mini recession there, and um, so they wanted to keep their focus on the U.S. market, which is where they were very strong on the U.S. and and, and Canadian. Um, so uh, we decided to kind of just launch an idea that how about if we invested our own money, okay, to do this, and uh, that worked out. The board of directors over there was very happy. We were we were happy. So it took the risk away from them, put the risk on us, but at the same time, we then kind of gained some freedom there. And our building in Montreal, which we've been in from the very beginning, 
kind of splits in two, becomes half of it's still LSI Seiko. <laughs> and then we have a company that we called LSI International or LSII as it was known, uh, which was basically doing what I just mentioned. Fast forward a little bit. I mean, all this goes very well. Uh, great relationships still with LSI. And then in 2015, the climate became very interesting for us. And an opportunity presented itself where we had the opportunity to buy Seiko back, okay, from LSI. Now, th this is something that, like when you say you had an opportunity to buy it back, mm -hmm. you know, what is there something that precipitated that? Or did, where they wanted to get out of something, you wanted to get into something? Yeah, so there was a... It was a big shift in their board of directors over there, and they're looking at their businesses, and they're you know, then they're kind of decentralized a lot, and they're looking to consolidate uh, some of that stuff. And obviously, being kind of like, like the one man out over in Canada, um, you know, I we could see that there was a little bit of this uh, feeling of what do we do with these with these Canadians. So we went there, and we you know we basically made them an offer, and we would continue mm -hmm. developing and, and and pushing some of their ideas, and they accepted. So, um, so, so it was really so great. So it went, went completely back to being private. Completely back to being was private. It, was it at that time that you, like your involvement there, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you became a lot more involved at that point? Yeah. So basically, like like my personal journey there, obviously, um, I started there like around 94, let's say, uh, unofficially. Um, as you were hovering around. As I was hovering around um, and, and obviously participated in the business and became uh, very close with uh, with uh, the two brothers the founders, and, yeah. Yeah, and uh, obviously helped uh, move the business forward. Um, and, but, it, but it's really in 2011 um, where when we created the new entity, LSI International, um, then I was a partner. Okay, and I was a partner with one of the founders. And then in 2015, the second founder, obviously, was was already part of Seiko. We all came together and created what Seiko is known as today. What are your thoughts on the benefits of tech companies in particular being public or private? And do you find that it was uh, it was more helpful to your innovation to be private? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, we learned so much from from uh, from LSI. We learned, uh, for example, uh, and and I know this may be not like the public uh, uh, public or, or private question, but the fact is that this company was extremely v good at manufacturing the same thing over and over again, right? Quality control. So we learned a lot from that. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's all of these other aspects that come into play when you're when you're public. Um, but I do have to say one thing. You know, I was mentioning about our about our, our control structure. Um, Fred always insisted that the company be ran as a public company. So Seiko, from the very beginning, was run that way. You know, get audited every year, and 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 all of our procedures are in place. So the shift wasn't it, it, it wasn't dramatic for us, and the shift back wasn't dramatic either. You you know you we talk uh, we've talked very briefly about Seiko being all of the world, you know, you, you have projects all over the world. Is there a country that's easiest or hardest to do business in or with? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, every country has its own challenges. I mean, sometimes it's logistics, sometimes it's just getting there. Um, but it really comes down to the clients. I mean, we, we see a lot of similarities be between different, con uh, be between different clients in different countries. So no, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't say that that one country stands out in particular. Protecting your intellectual property is that an issue? Um, well, yes. I mean, it's always it's always a concern. Let's put it that way. I'm not going to say that it's really an issue. I mean, we're um, we're kind of like on, on on the tip of that of that technology sword, right? So uh, we, of course, have patents and stuff like that, but we also do a lot of stuff under trade secrets. And uh, you know, we always have uh, two or three generations ahead in our in our lab. 
So when someone comes up with something similar, we just bring out the new toy. And and quickly, just before we go, uh, move on to the next segment, and we're we're going to talk about kind of tomorrow's workplace today and the, the culture. Was there is there a culture at Seiko that that the founders or you kind of embody and 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 what maybe attracts people or or really drives your business? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that Seiko is really a place where everybody is allowed to express themselves. And it's one of the biggest attractors. You know, I mean, we were talking about skill sets earlier, but I mean, that's that's really one of the things that we look at. But what we're really interested in is everything else that person can do. And how does that mesh with the other people that have other things they can do? And we create that kind of environment where you can do that, you can express yourself. And we can see that. I mean, I can walk on any project and see, I remember when that person came up with that idea. Hey, this guy came up with this or this girl came up with that idea. And that's what it is. I mean, Seiko is a collection of, really talented people and if and if i read between the lines and, I, and we spoke about it a little off air part of your culture is we want to make a difference absolutely so so that's that's where that's where it all stems from and I, we're going to continue that conversation in just a moment for professional advice with a personal touch consult fl fuller landau chartered professional accountants and business advisors click on flmontreal.com Today's Entrepreneur on CJD 800, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL's Josh Miller with you. And we have Jonathan LaBay with us of Seiko Technologies. We'll have his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur coming up in a few minutes. But first, we welcome back uh, FLHR advisor, Michelin Mayet, to the program. Welcome back, Michelin. Hi, Dan. So talent, retention, and acquisition. Uh, we'll get there in a second. But first, let's give a quick shout out to the event coming up on Thursday, Josh, at JMSB, the John Molson School of Business at Concordia. So you folks are hosting this. It's all day long. It's a conference called tomorrow's workplace today uh 8 a.m to 7 p.m the whole day including meals um what uh, what are you going to be teaching entrepreneurs and, and and we are collaborating with a couple of other with a couple of other uh, human resource people and culture professionals so it's uh, it's it's a great collaborative event and it's really it's not just about really not just about talent acquisition i think like it's a great byproduct uh but it's really about culture it's really about you know the workplace environment it's really about not being in the 60s but being in the almost 2020s mm -hmm. uh, and and i think that's uh, and that, that's really the the concept and, and stuff that i'd like to talk about with michelin today is and michelin you've you've been in this in this domain of this industry in this sector for a long time mm -hmm. there's been lots of changes but what do you see as conceptually changing or required and challenges for entrepreneurs as they look at their tomorrow's workplace today? I'd say the main thing that's changing is really people's values. And I think that's what it boils down to at this event. And I think that's why, um, you know, it's easy to look very superficially at how the workplace is changing. So you can talk about, okay, we have foosball tables and, uh, you know, we have a wellness program and, and this type of thing, but it could be very superficial. So we're really looking at people's values. That's really what's changed and how every work environment is a little bit different. So every industry is going to be a bit different. And that's why we've made this event very experiential. So everybody's going to be coming at it from a different perspective. So people are there to learn from each other and look and see. So how is the workplace changing and what impact is this going to have on my particular business? And it, like you say, you know, every different sector, every different business, not, not everybody's a tech company, not everybody's a professional company, not everybody's a manufacturer. It's all different. But mm -hmm. so they, they do kind of will relate to themselves, but th there must be some common themes. Mm -hmm, for sure. So, I mean, if you look at, you know, the up and coming, uh, even the current workforce, but really even more so the up and coming workforce, 
people have really valued We're talking about generations? Like, is that what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, we're talking about generations a little bit, but I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like you have Generation X at a certain date and everybody else after is a millennial. It there's blends. a certain, yeah, there's a certain blend, you could say. We'll talk more about a tendency, I would say, within society at large. Uh, but you can talk about um, people wanting to feel that they're part of something bigger than themselves, so a community. Um, people wanting to participate in something, a more human aspect to the work environment. So when we look at doing something like, let's say, flexible work schedules, you know, something very basic like that, um, really what we're trying to do is is personalize a little bit the work schedule to different people. So one thing that we can see more and more with the up and coming generation is that they don't like rules just for the sake of having rules. So it's really relooking at the way that we uh, run our business and the, the way that we adapt our workplace to these needs to see, do we really need to have all these rules or we, can, we, can we have a more human workplace that is adapted as much as possible? So it's really, um, you know, I think one of the, the, the types of resistance that we're seeing is a lot of people will come at it saying, these are, this is the whole list of reasons why this won't work for us. Whereas people really have to be thinking of what can we do to make this work? Jonathan, you're nodding your head a little bit. So you're, you're in agreement with some of it. I, I know we spoke a little bit or very briefly about the culture at, at mm-hmm. Seiko, uh, you know, and everybody's sharing, but, but, you know, what is your reaction to, to Michelin's comments? Yeah, and no, I'm, I actually agree a hundred percent. I mean, we've seen a, throughout the years, a big shift in how, you know, in, in, not only in how we hire people, but, but what matters to employees and, and, and people that work, and I can speak on behalf of Seiko, you know, I mean, we've uh, we've always been a bit different in any case, <clears throat> simply because different time zones that we work in and, and, and so on and so forth. But the truth is that we're more interested in the productivity than the amount of hours, for example. So we are pretty flexible. Um, people have stuff that they need to do, but as long as their work is, uh, gets done, and if they can feel like they're participating in something and they're accomplishing something, and they can, and that becomes tangible to them, we've noticed a huge spike in productivity there. Is that Michelin? You know, when when we think of that tomorrow's workplace today, is it being less of a helicopter owner? You know, kind of a helicopter parent. Mm-hmm. Is it really letting letting the people express themselves? Is it really kind of uh, delegating? Like, like, where do you see that as as a, a growth aspect for? for the, the people or the talent that, that entrepreneurs uh, work with? Again, I don't think it's in a one-size-fits-all rule. I think people are looking for for meaning in their work and for things to be pertinent. So I think it's a little bit, um, I think it's different for every type of type of business. But yeah, I would say, um, you know, the, the typical picture of the autocratic boss, you know, the dictator who tells everybody what to do. I think people like to be in an environment where they do feel that they have a voice and that they can participate in the success of the building, is of there, the business. Is there a direct correlation to talent acquisition and retention? Is there a direct correlation to mm-hmm. hiring and keeping people based on this culture, based on this environment? I always say you get the employees that you deserve. <laughs> so <laughs> you can have a certain style, but you're not always going to necessarily attract the best talent. So um, Carolyn, who's been working on me with the conference, um, keeps quoting uh, uh, the president of Apple, which, of course, his name's uh, escaping me right Tim now. Cook. Yes, yeah, exactly. Who yeah. um, said, yeah, you don't hire the brightest people just to tell them what to do all the time. Right. 
So I think that's part of it. I think, you know, if you want to run your business that way, well, you're going to end up getting talent that likes to be told what to do all the time. Mm -hmm. So if you want people uh, who can think for themselves and be creative, well, then you need to foster an environment that's going to attract and retain that type of person. And I think we've kind of heard a little bit of that from Seiko and, and your people. And whether you're searching for more talent or not, it sounds like you, you've kind of embodied that, oh, we are. that experience oh, as we well. We are. Do call us. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank, thank you so much, Michelin. Thank you. I know it's a, it's a topic we could talk about forever. Mm-hmm. But uh, go tomorrowsworkplacetoday.ca. Go check it out. Join us on, on Thursday. It's, a, it's an all-day workshop. Come come learn. Come come be part of the change and, and, and make the best of, of your workplace tomorrow. Thanks very much, Michelin. Yeah, Don't forget to you. register on the website, by the way, tomorrowsworkplacetoday.ca and uh, there's still some spots available so it's all day on Thursday you must register and as we approach the last motor show each week uh, we'll turn to Jonathan Labay of Seiko and ask you Jonathan what would be your one or maybe two pieces of advice for today's entrepreneur yeah I'll give you two um, because I think that they're equally important the first one is um, suppliers should be treated as customers one of the reasons why we have a lot of success and we're able to deliver projects like Burj Khalifa is because our suppliers are willing to do backflips for us. And that's because we've we've uh, created this type of relationship with them and always treated them the right way. And my second piece of advice would be, actually to Michelin's point, um, you should hire the very best talent that you can afford. Excellent. Thank you. I, I think relationships is, is always underplayed, but uh, but not lost. And those relationships are huge in helping any business. We talk about business karma. That's what goes around, comes around. All right. Thanks very much uh, to Jonathan LeBay and thanks to Michin Mayette as well at uh, Thank FL. You. Thanks, guys. Uh, we're back in two weeks, Josh. Two Correct. Weeks from now, and we're going to talk marketing with the group from the Sunday Collective. Don't forget today's entrepreneur.org for 10 years worth of entrepreneur profiles uh, and check it out there. We'll see you back here in two Mondays from now. <laughs>